today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe and tell your friends. Coming up on today's show, it has been quite a week in Canadian politics, plus a scathing interview from Jane Philpott in McLean's magazine has not helped the Prime Minister turn the page. Also, the President of the United States made quite a few headlines himself this week. We'll touch on that. And the Ontario PC Party winding down the Liberal Fair Hydro Plan. What does that mean for your rates? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. It's been a wild week in Canadian politics. 24-hour mar- a marathon, I guess over that, voting session uh, after the budget, uh, trying to keep the whole Justice Committee issue with Joseph, Jody Wilson-Raybould and the SNC-Lavalin affair alive. Uh, here's a clip of the ruckus going on. I do want to give an opportunity for something I did uh, 29 and a half hours ago, and I'd ask for unanimous consent for the following motion. That the House take note of the comments of the member for Vancouver Granville that indicated she has not been able to fully explain the events that led to her resignation and that the House call on the Prime Minister to waive full solicitor-client privilege and all Cabinet confidences to allow the member for Vancouver-Granville to address events that occurred following January 14, 2019, including her time as the Minister of Veterans Affairs, her resignation from that position and her presentation to Cabinet that followed. I'm sure, Mr. Speaker, after 30 hours of the cover-up, they'll want to vote for that now. All right, here's what the Prime Minister had to say uh, in regard to letting Jody Wilson-Raybould speak again. It was extremely important uh, that the former Attorney General be allowed to share completely her perspectives, her experiences on this issue, and that is what she was able to do. The issue at question is uh, the issue of pressure around the Lavalin issue um, while she was Attorney General, and she got to speak fully to that. All right, and here's what NDP leader Jagmeet Singh had to say in reply. With the Justice Committee shutting down the opportunity to continue the investigation with a Liberal-dominated, a Liberal-majority membership on that committee, we know that it's going to be difficult to get to the truth. So that's why, more than ever, given Ms. Philpott's interview, Given everything that we've heard, more than ever, we need a public inquiry to get to the truth. All right, let's bring in Duff Conagher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, adjunct professor, University of Ottawa. He is with us now. Duff, thank you for the time as always. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Are you, are you surprised how this just keeps going and going and going and going? I mean, the budget was supposed to distract us from all of this, and there's been three major incidents since then. It's not surprising because, uh, as the old saying goes, the cover-up is is uh, possibly worse than the actual violations in the first place. Not that the violations aren't serious, but um, you keep the story going when you don't answer all the questions about it. So where do we go from here? We, you know, we heard what the Prime Minister had to say. I, I, I don't know how good it looks when he stands up and says that Jody Wilson has spoke. I mean, I'm, is it up to him to decide uh, you know, when she has had enough to say and when she hasn't uh, most would guess it's up to her that being said uh, especially with the interview in McLean's and such what does it take to get either one of these women to tell us what's going on uh, well it's developing so quickly that um, there's a new story up right now saying 
Jody Wilson-Raybould will provide a written statement and copies of text messages and emails to the Common Justice Committee. So she's going to do that. And um, that will put the record, written record out there, all the evidence that she has. And we will see that? Uh, at least opposition party members will see it. Um, but she is still saying it will be within the confines of the waiver of cabinet confidence, which means she won't be able to talk about the meeting that she had with Trudeau or any communications with him just before she left cabinet because the waiver only covers up to the time that she was shuffled to and left, uh, was no right. longer attorney general and was moved to veterans affairs. So there's still another month long period that she's will not be talking about that. She's been asking to be, uh, the waiver to be extended to, you know, essentially because Gerald Butts talked about that period right. in his testimony, and the Prime Minister didn't do anything to him to say that he'd breached cabinet confidence. Or so, um, there's still a period that will not be covered, but at least we'll get those written record. And uh, I, I can't imagine. I mean, if the committee votes to keep that all secret, that's just continuing the cover-up, and it will. Questions will continue as long as the Liberals don't allow them to be a- answered. Uh, the Justice Committee has already said they have moved on. Will they take this into consideration? Do they reopen this? What happens? Well, they haven't issued any conclusions. Right. Um, and they probably won't. The Liberals will try and... Will this Could this them. lead to her back to the Justice Committee speaking again? Yeah, I mean, the committee can change its mind any time. Yeah. So, it, you know, I, I, my... my uh, uh, thought is that um, they thought, well, let's shut it down, let's do the budget, and then we'll see how the editorial boards across the country and the newspapers write and the mm-hmm. columnists and people are talking about it. And if the pressure is enough, any politician will reverse their decisions. So for Trudeau to say that's what the real issue is, that's not the only issue, because part of the issue is um, what has happened, and how did he react to uh, this all coming out? And why did she resign the day after he said everything was fine? Look, she's in cabinet. And jo- Jane Philpott also wants to talk about that period after she was shuffled. Um, and uh, and also... Uh, some other matters. We don't know exactly what. But there seems to be some confusion as to what Jody Wilson-Raybould and even Jane Philpott can say now. Uh, many have said that, uh, you know, you're saying, and, and, and many do, that uh, this is up to the Prime Minister to say, yeah, go ahead and say what you want in front of the, ju- in, in front of the Justice Committee uh, and, and during these periods, just like it was granted to Gerald Butts. Others have said, well, if they want to talk, why, they're not being bound by anything. Why don't they just talk. They can go into the House, they have immunity there, or or, or use other means. What can and can't they do? Why don't they speak up? Why don't they end run this? Well, they were cabinet ministers and they took an oath of cabinet confidentiality. And the waiver does not cover the entire period during which Jody Wilson-Raybould was a cabinet minister. Right, yeah. And so... Um, so they cannot and, speak until the prime minister gives them permission. Well, she was shuffled, and Jane Philpott wants to talk about that shuffle, presumably both about because she's already mentioned that she raised it with the prime minister, and that came out in the testimony mm-hmm. of Gerald Butts. Um, 
raised it with the prime minister before she was shuffled, and then communications after. Yeah. And she was a cabinet minister still at that point. So cabinet confidentiality is not a small thing. There is a, currently a vice admiral in the yeah. Canadian Forces who is being charged with breach of trust for breaching cabinet confidentiality. So obviously and it's not as easy. It's, he's been charged with a crime for that. It's not as easy as, you know, going into the House and saying what they want to say. Not for the issue of cabinet confidentiality, no. No, it's not. Um, I mean, they're just trying, they're trying to be cautious because right. they don't want anyone to be able to say, oh, look, they just went ahead and broke all the rules. See, right. they're bad people. Yeah, and yeah. that's what they think they're, they're being right. set up for. And mm. the prime minister, if, if everything, he wants the full truth to come out and the committee does as well, then extend the waiver and let them talk about the things that Gerald Butts talked about. Gerald Butts obviously was on the prime minister's side, so it was safe for him to talk about anything. But they're not on the Prime Minister's side, and this government has had a guy charged with breach of trust for uh, revealing cabinet confidences. So it's, uh, I, th- I think everyone should be sympathetic to them. They're, they're just asking for something very simple. Yeah. Let's talk about what Gerald Butts talked about and make it clear that we can. Do you feel that the court of public opinion is switching in the sense that people are uh, looking to Jody Wilson-Raybould and to uh, Jane Philpott to put up or shut up? Uh, not, that's not what the polls say. Mm-hmm. The polls say the prime minister's uh, rating uh, has taken a hit, and there's nothing else really that's happened in the news in the last month that would cause that, and that the liberals have also taken a hit in terms of uh, public support. How do... Swing voters voters pay attention to this stuff, right? And they're the ones that swing in polls. The core of the Liberals and the Conservatives and the NDP, they're always going to support whatever their leader does, no matter what their leader does. Uh, That core never changes. It's what happens with swing voters, and the swing voters have swung somewhat. Both Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould have committed to... Uh, the Liberals and and their constituents in running again and such, how do they balance whatever it is they want to come out with the damage it could do to the party in the next election? What do they want here? Well, um, people are watching in Britain and saying, how are these Conservative MPs voting against their Conservative Prime Minister? Well, that's because they do that in Britain, they do it in Australia, they do it in New Zealand. It's only in Canada that over the last uh, almost 50 years now, really it, it started in the 80s, um, but the rules changed in, the sev- in 1970 to give the p- party leader power to say you can't be the candidate in the next election and, uh, or to deregister a riding association so it might be supporting a candidate and the, 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 any party leader can just deregister a riding association with Elections Canada and say, here's the new riding association, it's got all my people on the board. And those powers have been abused since the mid-80s on by party leaders, holding it as an axe over every candidate's, every MP's head, saying, toe the line. It's well documented. An association of former parliamentarians uh, in 2005 issued a report about how many of them had been threatened with uh, not being allowed to run again for the party if they didn't toe the line and vote the way the prime minister or cabinet wanted them to. It happens all the time, and uh, it's, we have the highest level of party discipline of any parliamentary system in the world. And 
Britain doesn't do this. Australia doesn't do it. New Zealand doesn't do this. It's perfectly fine for an MP, not for a cabinet minister, which is why they both left cabinet, but for an MP to say, I think our government's done wrong here and stay with, with the party and in the party caucus. We're just so used to the party leaders being able to tell MPs exactly what to do, as right. the prime minister's father called them when he was prime minister, trained seals who are nobodies 100 yards from the Parliament Hill, that uh, we, we think it's wrong for this to be done. No, this is right, and this is healthy. And How? MPs should be able to say always in every party when they think the party leader or the party uh, uh, leaders at the the top levels have done wrong. What do you think could reconcile all of this between uh, these two people and the prime minister? Or do you think this is an effort to oust the prime minister? No, I don't think it's an effort to oust the prime minister. I think it's two people who entered politics not to move up with this unhealthy and unethical career ambition that some of them have where they'll do anything uh, and and bend over backwards to please anybody who can promote them. Right. They they went in to do good things and represent their voters and uphold the law. And Wilson Raybould was a prosecutor, and so I'm sure she's probably seen in the past situations that were of politicians trying to influence prosecutors. Uh, and she's seen how the police have treated First Nations peoples and and let been let off the hook again and again by prosecutors, and was. Saying, and big companies as well, right, who have gone in and d- developed the resources on First Nations land and uh, left behind pollution or whatever. So that's her experience that she's coming from, uh, and apparently more. I don't know the full uh, cultural uh, indicators, but apparently she is actually a designated truth teller in her First Nation. So, so what he ran into those people yeah. And, yeah. and said, well, no, I mean, I'm sure it's happened in the past that prime minister has told an attorney general step in and stop a prosecution we just don't know about it because that attorney general said sure that i, I will do that because i want to remain in cabinet and and uh, my career ambition is to stay in cabinet as opposed to uphold the law what is going to happen to reconcile what is going to There's need no to happen way to reconcile to... it the, so the, the truth will come out admitted to wrongdoing right no pressure is allowed and yep. they keep saying no inappropriate pressure was put on her. Well, there's no such thing as appropriate. Well, pressure. it's now becoming a, you know, what is the definition of pressure, right? Uh, well, it's clear that she was pressured yeah. because she said to them, uh, I've made my decision. Well, they weren't providing her with information after that. There's, you know, the documents show that uh, there was pressure applied. And all you have to have is one instance of pressure, and that's illegal. Under the the doctrine, it's very clear. It says right in it, no pressure is allowed. So um, they've already admitted to wrongdoing, but they're going to stick with this line that there's such a thing as appropriate pressure and that it was a misunderstanding and an erosion of trust right, right. from both sides. And nothing's going to reconcile that because they're never going to admit to wrongdoing. Uh, the ethics commissioner, if he does the right thing, will not rule on it because he was handpicked by the Trudeau cabinet through a questionable process. But uh, even if he does stick with ruling on it, it's very clearly a violation of the Conflict of Interest Act. So rule because you can't do this. So now she will provide a statement to the Justice Committee. When will we see that? Uh, I imagine it's going to take her just a bit of time. Um, but emails and texts and written statement. I mean, she seemed to have the full record at hand, even though she said she was only providing a summary. So 
So I would guess within the next week she'll put that all together and uh, send it to the committee, which uh, there's no reason why that can't be made fully public. Again, it's going to leave the one month uh, of the situation not um, disclosed in terms of what yeah. you might say about it or Jane Philpott will say about it. But it will at least be the full record leading up to uh, the time she was shuffled and the whole record of, of the pressure. And she has hopefully already provided that to the Ethics Commission. Yeah, will there be much there that isn't already that we don't already know? Well, um, Gerald Butts talked about other situations. Yeah, so she'll... Other yeah, texts right. and emails yeah. and, and turn some of them over. She and can she respond said, to that. I only did a partial disclosure right. because I didn't want to go on for 12 hours. So, right. um, you know, the, the key thing, is, there's one text where... Her chief of staff, after meeting with Gerald Butts and Katie Telford, the other top staffer for the prime minister, sent her a text saying, Jerry just told me there is no uh, uh, resolution here without interference. Mm. And that's the only written record that's been fully referred to. Uh, as a po- Everything else has been the phone calls and yeah. meetings, and that allows for a he said, she said. So hopefully in what she provides... We'll there respond will be to that. more written yeah. record evidence of pressure. Duff Conacher has been with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. Duff, always thank you for the pre- uh, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. You too, and we'll hopefully we can talk soon about uh, the Integrity Commissioner's ruling on Doug Ford that let him totally off the hook for clear ethics violations. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The U.S. president has made quite a few headlines uh, himself for, a multi- for multiple reasons uh, uh, over the last week or so. Some of them political and some of them just, um, well, we we're not really sure why he says things, including, for some reason, bringing up John McCain again. So I have to be honest, I've never liked him much. Hasn't been for me. I've really probably never will. All right. Uh, it's amazing how uh, I'm not sure if these are just distractions or just the Donald Trump we've come to know and love. Reggie Cicchini is with us, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News based in Washington. He is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. As always, much appreciated. Good afternoon. So uh, what's the, uh, you know, obviously uh, the, the things that are going on like this with the McCain and, and Kellyanne, Kellyanne Conway and such and her husband are one thing. Uh, what about Donald Trump and uh, more political stuff that's happening this week uh, in Washington? Uh, what are his thoughts on the Mueller report for uh, the longest time he's been saying witch hunt? Now he's sort of changing his tune and saying, bring it on. Where is he in all of this? Well, when it comes to the Mueller report, yeah, he was standing at the White House on the lawn earlier this week, basically saying, you know, this report could be coming out soon. We've basically been saying that, you know, this report could come out imminently now for the last couple of months. The president has always said, you know, if this report comes out, it's going to be nothing but a hoax. It's going to be nothing uh, but kind of a, a hate-filled and and fake bunch of words that Robert Mueller is putting out there. Now he's basically changing his tune, saying, well, look, when this report does come out, however long it is, what inf- uh, whatever information it has, we want people to see it. He kind of went on this long tangent when he was talking about this, trying to say that he won the election and got a number, a big number of electoral votes and that uh, Steve, uh, that uh, Robert Mueller rather didn't get any votes. So he doesn't understand why this report is being drafted, which caused a little bit of confusion. But he says the people, the tens of millions of people who voted me in, they want to see this report. So he's basically kind of pulling the curtain back, saying when this is issued, whenever that happens to be, just put it all out there, regardless of what might be in it. 
So how do you explain that? I mean, how, wh- why the change in tactic? Well, I mean, the president, you know, he obviously has had some kind of people around him basically saying that when this report comes out, it could basically, you know, be one of those, you know, quote unquote, nothing burgers and have not a lot of stuff in it. There have been a number of people out there that are basically saying when this report comes out, because it's been so hyper focused simply on one thing, for those that think that, you know, this may be an exonerating report, they're going to be let down. For those that think that this is going to be a kind of report that will lead to impeachment or indictments, they're going to be let down. So I think the president's kind of listening to all this, listening to what is advised are saying and you know when this report comes out whatever it contains he'll try to fight back against it either say it's fake or say it's not real uh any more news as to when it is coming i know that's a, a crystal ball question but for some reason people are starting to believe that it's sooner rather than later well, we, we, we kind of started ramping this up again towards the end of last week and at the beginning of this week. And then yesterday, there was a photo of Robert Mueller wearing a baseball hat, driving himself into work. Then we saw that the attorney general and the deputy attorney general were at the White House yesterday for uh, different business. But there's kind of this cloud that's been stirring over D.C. for the last week or so with people basically saying this has got to be wrapping up soon. We can't have much left in it. We do know that there are some people that are still cooperating with ongoing investigations. So whether or not that kind of, you know, puts a damper on it and this lasts a little bit longer this investigation is still an unknown but you know Robert Mueller's staff has been shrinking the office size has been getting smaller so we do know that things are starting to wind down we just don't know when that day is going to be when that information finally drops into the hand of the attorney general uh, what can you tell us about what has happened today in regard to Israel Be- uh, Benjamin Netanyahu obviously very supportive of Trump at this point uh, where does this leave things well I mean this 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 information that was given out by the president yesterday by saying that uh, you know the the United States basically recognizes Israel's claim to the Golan Heights this was kind of something that has put a little bit of uh, of unnerved tension feelings uh, through certain leaders in the Middle East through certain uh, people across the United States because you have to remember the Golan Heights area of Israel uh, they claimed it back, you know, 50 years ago during a war. They annexed it back in the early 80s. They now basically are trying to make a settlement case and say that this is our land. We're going to take this. This is a big move that Benjamin Netanyahu has been praising uh, people that support him. This is kind of the big push that he needed heading into an election. The president, knowing full well that there's an election two weeks away, is waiting in, trying to give Benjamin and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu some support, mm-hmm. while also trying to be the Republican leader who says, I already told you that the Democrats are anti-Israel and anti Jewish. This is me standing up for the people there. Uh, What about uh, Kim Jong-un and North Korea? Uh, We remember what happened during the second summit. Talks broke down. Now it seems that tensions are starting to rise again. What can you tell us on that? Well, we do know that uh, that there were reports from North Korea that say that uh, the regime is basically starting to put the pieces back together from some of their nuclear testing sites that have either been, uh, you know, not in operation or dismantled. Uh, last year, we saw that there was kind of a big spectacle with reporters standing around as they kind of blew up the entrance and blew up certain parts right. of, uh, of a nuclear reactor. We now know that they're starting to put those things back together, uh, basically saying that, you know, negotiations have, have kind of broken down, that the United States doesn't really seem to be playing a fair game right now. So they're going to continue on with what they're doing. Now, we haven't heard much by way of the president or anybody uh, who's dealing with North Korean negotiations right now, given with what else is happening in Washington. This is going to be one of those things to watch, though. The president says that they have a rosy relationship, that they fell in love at the first summit. Now we have North Korea basically going against everything that they were talking about during the second summit. How does South Korea feel about all of this? 
Well, South Korea has kind of been caught in the middle of all of this from the beginning. There's always been a fear that they would be the first ones to be struck if North Korea did happen to enhance their nuclear abilities and, and were able to actually send a missile over towards the country. Japan feels that they're in the same crosshairs right now. So knowing now that the United States has already said they're going to stop the war games uh, in South Korea, that basically kind of puts them on the ready for any time there is some kind of potential uh, conflict that would potentially be down the road with the North. This just leaves South Korea in a much more vulnerable position right now, and that's why we have to see what happens with negotiators if they continue to talk with those in the north. Uh, any reason to think that this is going back to the days of fire and fury? Will it escalate to that or we come well, too far? It's it's very possible. I mean, look, the president speaks his mind and says what he wants whenever he wants. So there could be, you know, a, a flip in his relationship with Kim Jong-un at any given time. Uh, we haven't heard him say much by way of what North Korea is doing right now and the reports that are coming from uh, from the state news and state media that way. Uh, you know, it's just one of those things. we got to wait and see what the president does when he starts putting in 280 characters. <laughs> um, uh, chatter this week in regard to uh, we remember when they had the uh, Trump and Putin summit and uh, lots of chatter back then about how uh, no real records were kept or if they were they were confiscated by the president the Democrats trying to get access to these what do we know about that? Uh, well, we know that, you know, the, the records that have been, you know, either destroyed or confiscated or never is, uh, existed in the first place is something that the Democrats have been trying to go after for uh, since the day it happened. It's something that Republicans felt uneasy about. We know that the quest continues, but we know that, uh, you know, the the idea of messages and, and communication kind of being shielded from the public is something that's even happening right now. It happened with Russia uh, meeting. It's happening right now with Jared Kushner. There's conversation or there's uh, allegations that he's been using an, a messenger app on his phone to be able to have conversations with foreign leaders in the Middle East and that he's not potentially putting these uh, communications and conversations into the record, uh, uh, kind of into the, uh, the, the, um, the, the, the record that if you're a big person in Washington, you've got to kind of have this stuff on the line. There's uh, allegations that he's not doing that right now. So the president's conversations with Vladimir Putin, Jared Kushner's conversations with MBS in Saudi Arabia, this is all kind of a, a pattern that we've been seeing in Washington for the last two years. Uh, we certainly know what happened in uh, New Zealand uh, in the past week and, and what has resulted in, in the ban of, of uh, automatic weapons, military-style weapons there. Has any of that resonated in the United States? Has that, has that uh, gained or, or had much traction in the United States this week? The conversation, you know, is very much one-sided when it comes to what we saw in New Zealand, uh, particularly when it comes to their banning of assault rifles. Very few Republicans have decided to bring this up, but a great number of Democrats, but more so the news media has been bringing this up by basically saying, look, there was a shooting in New Zealand, and within one week, not only did they not offer thoughts and prayers, they went to their legislature, they put a law in place, and now they're dealing with, you know, an amnesty for people to bring in their, uh, their, their weapons. And this is something that Democrats are basically saying this it makes America look bad on world stage that in the aftermath of a school shooting that leaves scores of children dead we can't get guns off the street we can't get legislation that would stop handguns from being in the hands of the wrong people or from being in the hands of anybody that shouldn't have a gun but New Zealand is able to so this is a democratic push right now to try and say this is the conversation that we need to have going forward when it comes to gun rights it'll be a big fight up against the NRA they're a big lobbyist down here they put a lot of money into the Republican Party but that's what the Democrats are focused 
focusing on right now, along with the news media, saying, look, these things can happen. It doesn't just have to be a thoughts and prayers situation. Uh, how does the NRA, how, do, how, do, how does the pro-gun lobby respond to this? Well, I mean, the, the gun lobby is always going to say that, you know, guns are there to protect people. The guns in the hand of the good people are what take down the guns in the hands of the bad people. Right. That's been their stance, you know, basically from the beginning. And it's their big push around the Republicans as well. I mean, they feed a lot of money into the Republican Party. They'll, they'll feed a lot of money into uh, kind of political campaign ads once we get kind of into the heart of the election. And you'll see that the NRA says guns are what save people. It's not pe- uh, guns don't kill people. People kill people. So uh, is anybody making the argument New Zealand's, uh, you know, on an island in the middle of nowhere, uh, this is the United States, it's a totally different situation, it's not that simple? conversations like that don't even happen. It's basically a one way or the other saying really? that, that that something can happen in a place where a shooting happens. You know, there's still, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people that are living in New Zealand that, that are, you know, that were impacted by, by this shooting and saying that, look, if they can do something in seven days, sure, maybe we can't do it in seven days here, but it is possible something that we can do that's not just words. Do you think it's a numbers thing? Um, you know, 50 people in New Zealand, my goodness. Uh, that being said, we certainly remember what happened in Vegas and, and what could have happened, I guess. Uh, do you think it has anything to do with that? I mean, it's very possible. I mean, you know, when you see a, a large number of people killed in a smaller area, kind of it resonates more by saying that this is a this is a kind of a greater number of people. But in the United States, when you take a look at the simple fact that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people are killed every single year at the hands of guns, this conversation that we started, you know, decades ago by trying to, you know, keep guns off the streets or keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people continuously goes back into this vicious cycle of, look, we just had 20 people killed. We just had 30 people killed. We just had 200 people shot, you know, over the last couple of months in Chicago. Those kinds of things, numbers don't really matter in the United States anymore. It's simply there's a big push to say we need to change these laws. We need to look around the rest of the world who doesn't have as big of a gun problem as America has right now, see what they're doing right and see why we can't get that done, why we can't overtake the money that's being pushed into the parties right now by lobbyists. All right, let's talk about the John McCain issue. Why is the president bringing up someone who has passed away? Well, we don't actually know why the president is doing this. Uh, he was asked by Fox News today, why did you bring this up when you were on uh, when you were speaking at a tank factory in Ohio earlier this week? And the president flipped it around and said, well, you just brought it up right now. I'm not the one who's bringing it up. So it's, it's kind of a selective listening situation when we talk about the president. But <laughs> for, for the most part, uh, you know, he, he's been rallying against John McCain because John McCain was a thorn in the president's side. And now that we're into kind of campaign mode for President Trump, he's basically going to look back and say, I made a promise that we were going to change and repeal and replace Obamacare, but I couldn't do it because John McCain got in the way of that and that he wanted to you know, say that we were going to move past this Russia investigation. But now he says John McCain is the one who handed over that dossier, which he says contained fake news paid for by Hillary Clinton. So these are now his attack points, because not only can he say these things, but he can say these things. John McCain is not here to defend himself. So it just gives the president ammunition to be able to keep attacking him. And he's being called out, not only by the Democrats, but by a large number of Republicans for saying that this is simply just an inappropriate way to be conducting things. Uh, What about saying he didn't get a thank you for the funeral? Well, that was just one of those moments that you expect President Donald Trump to say when he's speaking off the cuff. I mean, if you were paying attention to that room, that tank factory, when he brought up John McCain, before that, there was a lot of kind of cheering and laughter for him. When he brought up John McCain, the room fell silent. And then as he said, you know, I didn't expect this, but they didn't say thank you. There was not a you could hear a whisper in the room. You could hear a pin drop because it was just one of those moments that people looked at the president and said, Mr. President, there's a time and a place. Neither of those things should be happening right now. So is he just going to drop this at the advice of his uh, aides or will he try? 
will this somehow uh, be a distraction for him? Well, it very well could help him going down the road because there's a, a large number of, of Trump's uh, supporters and people who will continue to vote for Trump in the upcoming election who didn't like John McCain. And the more the president can say, you're not having, uh, you know, a better health care plan right now because, you know, a, a late senator was the one who got in the way. He'll be able to get the cheers from the crowd and the jeers toward John McCain because he knows that his supporters will listen to what he says. I'm sure he does have aides that are saying right now you might want to tone down this uh, th- this kind of, you know, conversation about the late senator. He's only been dead for six months. And even if he's been dead for 60 years, we probably don't want to do this. But there are those in the line of Trump's view who will absolutely appreciate what he has to say. All right, let's talk about Kellyanne Conway and her husband, George Conway. I guess, George, her husband was one time a supporter of Trump, now very much the opposite. How do you balance this? Well, I mean, so George Conway, you know, a lawyer, a very prominent lawyer in Washington. He's kind of a big name along the East Coast. His wife is a very big name, having his big job inside the White House. Uh, you know, George Conway was a supporter of Trump, like you said. He kind of fell back when uh, when the president tried to put forth that travel ban, which ultimately kind of got caught up in the court system and failed a whole bunch of times. He fell out of uh, line of view with the president. But over the weekend and for the last kind of couple of months has been being the thorn in the side that John McCain used to be by kind of poking at the president and by saying on Twitter, Twitter that he believes that the president suffers from a couple of uh, from um, a couple of uh, mental health disorders about yeah. being too narcissistic. The president didn't take kindly to that. Was able to you know kind of punch back and basically call uh, George Conway a whack job and start kind of saying all these inappropriate things about the husband of who the person who is his you know kind of chief legal advisor inside the White House. So who wins this tug of war? Well, it depends on who you're talking to. I mean, George Conway and the people who are supporting him right now say good on you for calling out the president, good on you for going after the president. The people who support the president will say you probably, you know, are the bigger person in this and you are the president, so you can kind of say what you want. But at the end of the day, the people who are kind of, you know, just waffling around, not sure what to think about this, we had the president of the United States calling a private citizen of the United States a whack job because he didn't like what he had to say. And there's a lot of people who have something to say about that. But again, with the relationship with uh, uh, Kellyanne Conway, I mean, when does this become a conflict of interest? Well, I mean, I think you're going to see Kellyanne Conway continue, if this does continue to go forward, basically saying, look, I have a private life and I have a work life and I'm really going to do the best to separate it right now. Lots of people are in that situation where, you know, they're at work and they might not like the people that they work with family, but they have to do their job. This is the situation that she's been put in right now. She has a lot of respect for the president. The president has a lot of respect for her. This also is what happens in a public light behind closed doors. You know, the president might actually say nice things about George Conway, but in the public light where he's trying to drum up support for him and try to have somebody go after somebody else, this is just the grand spectacle of things we've expected in 2019. you got to wonder what the dinner table is like at the Conway household, though. Well, I mean, you know, George Conway's not a supporter. This is kind of the, the situation that we've run into all over America, where somebody might be a Trump supporter and somebody might not be a Trump supporter, and maybe you don't always have buns being thrown across the table, <laughs> but you all always have some kind of a verbal spar. Yeah, I'm sure this isn't the first family that It's been fighting over it. But this seems a little close. Uh, Will it get too personal? Again, can it get in the way? Can this be a problem? It is possible. I mean, if the president were to continue this style of attack, I mean, at at one point, you would almost expect Kellyanne Conway to say, "Okay, I can't have this happening with any more. We can't keep going public by, you know, putting my family in the way, by putting my family in harm, by you making these kind of comments. And we know how uh, Trump supporters might oftentimes kind of, you know, skew and mishear how a comment should be made. So she may feel that there's a threat towards her family. We've seen people walk out of the White House because they don't like what's going on. There is the possibility that she could do this. But Kellyanne Conway has stood strong by Donald Trump. 
Trump through the thick and through the thin. Ever since uh, you know she became campaign manager, she has seen Donald Trump at his worst in the public eye and hasn't walked away yet. All right, what's uh, on the docket for next week? What can we expect? Well, I mean, right now we've got the president who just landed in Mar-a-Lago. He's going to be spending the weekend there dealing with uh, some Caribbean leaders, trying to get to some uh, some political work there. He did step off the plane today, making some news by saying that, uh, according to him and his advisors, that uh, that ISIS has been 100 uh, uh, percent defeated, that they've regained all their territory back in Syria. So that's the news that he's probably going to push through the weekend by saying that, you know, we said we would get this done. That's how we're going to do it next week. I mean, Monday is a lot of days away and there's a lot of time to tweet between now and Monday and, and the schedule can change within the next couple of minutes. Reggie Giacchini, on his toes, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News based in Washington. Make sure you're watching tonight, Global News 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Thank you, sir. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Most Ontarians start to cramp up when they hear uh, anything to do with the electricity file, especially remembering uh, the win government days. Uh, the Ontario PC Party will be winding down the Liberal Fair Hydro Plan. They say uh, the act, the Fixing the Hydro Mess Act, <laughs> uh, will upload local electricity conservation programs to the corporation that manages the system and will overhaul the energy sector watchdog. What does this mean for you and me? What does it mean moving forward in regard to our bills? Let's bring in Parker Gallant, Vice President, Ontario Wind Concerns, and is with us now. Parker, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, Scott. So what is going on here? Whenever I I, I hear anything about electricity, I I just, you know, it's like you spin around me, you spin me around three times with a blindfold on, and I'm looking for a donkey with no tail. Uh, It's it's always been extremely hard to follow this. Can you break this down at all? What's happening? Well, um, I think, you know, it's their attempt to sort of uh, move some of the costs of of the Fair Hydro Plan uh, into onto the taxpayers' bucks and as well to eliminate some of the, if you will, some of the things that uh, have been um, driving up our bills for some time. So it's kind of a combination of things. And also they want to try to make it a little more transparent so that we can actually see what is happening uh, on our bills. Um, you know, so you know, one of the things that they're doing is, uh, if you remember, the wind government set up the Fair Hydro Plan Trust, which is being administered by uh, OPG. And um, the Auditor General criticized that methodology because they said borrowing all that money on mm-hmm. the deferral side would cost Ontario uh, ratepayers a lot more money because the province can borrow cheaper than OPG can borrow. Mm-hmm. So they've eliminated that. So they're saying... From now on, the province will be funding whatever is being borrowed to cover the the cost of the fair hydro plan. So that will save us, uh, I don't know, over the over the next five or six years, probably uh, a fair chunk of change, probably well over a billion dollars. So that's one of the things they've done. Uh, they've also eliminated a number of the conservation initiatives. Uh, there's a whole stack of them that uh, mm-hmm. have have basically been eliminated, and that includes you know you're not going to get a coupon in your when you get your electricity bill, you're not going to get that coupon that says oh you can go and and uh, use this coupon to buy you know cheap LED bulbs. Right, that's gone. But they are keeping some of the other ones. They're they're uh, they're going to keep. Uh, 
the programs for uh, uh, low-income households and for an, indigenous or First Nations uh, uh, groups that was uh, installed and, and is part of that con- existing conservation program. So those will be retained, if you will. So they're still going to go, you know, carry on that. They're also going to try to do some consulting with, you know, uh, industrial uh, companies and industry groups to try to see if they can come up with some way of, of uh, you know, presenting a, 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 a cost for industrial customers that makes sense. So that's a consulting issue, though, not a, you know, not a, a program that's been established. So what does this mean for people and their electricity bills? Well, I mean, the other thing they've done is said you cannot, you know, for residential bills, you cannot increase the rates more than the rate of inflation. So um, that's, you know, what we can look forward to is that come April the 1st, whenever we get that notice uh, that your bill is going up, it will be, um, you know, related to the inflation rate. So if it's 1.5%, that's, you know, the inflation rate is 1.5%, your bill will go up 1.5%. So... So uh, we re- we remember the days of uh, the the waning days of the election campaign and um, and or maybe approaching the campaign and the Kathleen Wynne government decided that uh, that people were complaining that the rates were too high and that they of course financed the whole thing to 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 go down thir- uh, to to pay for it over thirty years in order to bring down the rates is this a correction in that. It's a slight correction. As I said, uh, you know, the cost of that program that when announced uh, were driven up by the fact that they were going to use this pair hydro plan trust um, to borrow the money. Mm-hmm. And so some of those costs will disappear. Obviously, eliminating some of the spending on, on conservation will save money as well. Um, in total, though it's not much, it's a couple of hundred million dollars. And but you know, when we're talking about a, a um, cost yeah. of twenty billion dollars approximately for the electricity system in the province, it's pretty small potatoes. But and and you know, they to be fair to the minister, he said this is the you know sort of first effort we put in to try to get those bills down by the twelve percent. So it's a start, if you will. Um, I don't know what more could come, but uh, we'll have to, you know, we'll have to wait and see. But some of those, you know, um, conservation, and we've been spending anywhere from 350 to $400 million a year since, you know, uh, going back 10 years now. So that's a fairly big chunk of change to take out of the cost program. But uh, it's not all being taken out. As I mentioned, some of it will be retained. Uh, and... The other thing they're going to do is, as I said, hopefully come up with some kind of a program that creates fairness for, uh, you know, industry that, you know, delivers a, a pricing mechanism there that works for them, which could also eliminate or move some of the costs that are being picked up by residential repairs under the Fair Hydro Act uh, now. Uh, if they can, you know, work, work somehow, work the magic to, to keep industrial rates down, rather than right now, uh, large industrial companies can pick sort of five hours in the year. If they pick the high demand, five hours in the year, they can get a pretty significant reduction in their bills, as much as twenty-five to thirty percent. So they're going to try to come up with some other means of, 
if you will, uh, making it fair for all industry because, you know, to pick the five hours, you have to kind of be lucky. It's like going out and yeah. buying a lottery ticket. So uh, we remember when um, Kathleen Wynne introduced all of this and, and shoved the payments down the road uh, 20 or 30 years that uh, this was basically to take us through the election process. And then in a couple of years, the rates would start to go up again dramatically. Are we heading for the same thing? I can't see us not heading for that. Uh, there's, you know, there's not enough in this reduction to to eliminate that. It will make the increases slightly smaller, but you know, a lot has to do with you know whether or not um, we'll we'll have uh, something reappear on our bills. You know, that was the stranded debt thing that was there before. Everybody may remember that, or some people may have forgotten it. But, you know, we paid, you know, and that was the, the cost of, uh, if you will, the nuclear refurbishments, uh, our nuclear bills that uh, the old Ontario Hydro had uh, run up. And those bills, you know, those bills came due. And then when Harris revamped the, the whole system, basically we wound up with that stranded debt. So every bill we got had a little, yeah. you know, chunk of stranded debt costs that we was another added. reminder yes. <laughs> so yeah. uh the opposition obviously you know they're they're going to be the opposition uh ndp uh energy critic peter tabin says this is effectively the liberals fair hydro plan it's got a new name but it's still subsidizing hydro bills in a way that people are not going to be able to afford in the long run um i don't know what's the alternative leave it well <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, and the other complaints you will hear from from that same group probably is that, you know, conservation is a great thing. Well, conservation has driven up our bills because, you know, because we've been conserving more and we've been using less and less energy every year, that means we have a bigger and bigger surplus being produced. And what do we do with that surplus? Well, we sell it off at a very cheap rate because we've got these funny... um, hourly Ontario energy prices and you know so we pay 13 and a half cents for wind generation and then we turn around and sell it for two and a half cents that just doesn't make any sense right so this way at least I think by eliminating the conservation initiatives uh, to a great extent and, and merging them in one office which is the IESO rather than all the 70 different local distribution companies they're going to save 150 million bucks. They estimate that uh, had been paid out in bonuses, and they probably will get some things that make a lot more sense because some of the LDCs have gone overboard in terms of, of you know, sort of buying into really dumb programs. As far as I'm concerned. Mm. Uh, the leader of the Green Party said tweaking the existing electricity structure will not fix the hydro mess. They're going to borrow uh, over $4 billion to subsidize electricity bills that are disproportionately benefit the wealthy. They should be saving that $4 billion, invest in some of it to support for low-income, rural, and remote communities, and using the rest to balance a budget. Your thoughts? Well, there's still, I mean, you know, they haven't eliminated, the, as I said, the remote communities and, and uh, low-income uh, households that still stands, so they're you know the money is still going to be uh, available for those uh, groups uh, as well as First Nations. So you know they haven't changed that aspect of it at all. What they've changed, as I said, is the way it's it's handled. So IESO will become the sole, uh, if you will, proprietor of that you know conservation money, 
and that conservation money will be a lot less than it has been in the past. And, uh, you know, it'll probably be, you know, I think they've estimated $435 million over over the next uh, three years. So it's a, quite a bit less, and, a, and it has a time frame on it as well. So it's not going to go on forever and ever. And as I said, they haven't taken it away from the low-income Canadian, uh, low-income households, and they haven't taken it away from First Nations and, and and those small, you know, the rural communities that have been affected in the past. So I think that that should save some money. But as I said, it still hasn't had. A, you know, it'll take a lot more to add up to that twelve percent reduction that uh, Doug Ford promised us. So I don't know where they're going to find that myself. That was my next question. The 12% they sell, they, it's still going to happen. How, where does that come from? I don't know where it's going to come from. And this no. is about, you know, this will represent maybe, uh, what, maybe a third of, of, of that 12%. So we're getting like a 3 or 4% reduction. Uh, where are they going to find the rest of it? I, I have no idea. Um, you know, they could stomp you know, if if we could consume more, as it said, consuming more will drive up our wholesale prices. And wholesale prices, if we then turn around and sell that, and you know, to New York State or State of Michigan, we might get more money for that. Um, so that's a you know that's a bonus, if you will, that could come and help reduce the bills for the rest of us. But. You know, uh, who knows? I mean, maybe Michigan and you know New York State and, and Quebec won't need the power that we have, and uh, the rates won't go up. But only time will tell. And as I said, it's it's uh, at, at the present time. Um, you know, we we pay literally uh, you know uh, hundreds of millions of dollars every year for idling gas plants. They do nothing. They yeah. sit there. And we pay them, you know, huge, huge amounts of money to be at the ready. And, uh, you know, if, if they actually produced, it would be very cheap power because we're just paying for, you know, basically a fuel cost. Yeah. So, I mean, those things may, you know, if, if hmm. we can get consumption up a little bit and we can eliminate some of the excess that we're paying for, like curtailed wind and spilled hydro, that might, you know, have a significant effect on, on how our bills uh, perform over the next two years. Where is wind now? I mean, we've had it for long enough that, uh, you know, we should have some sort of uh, uh, inkling whether this was the way to go or not to go. Where, where are the wind programs now? Well, I mean, there's, you know, we've got... I think about uh, 5,000 megawatts spread throughout the province, and, and um, uh, they are what IESO, when they look at wind turbines, they uh, basically say, mm, they might be able to produce 12% of their capacity when we need it. And that's the problem, is that you know wind tends to provide a lot of its uh, uh, excess during the spring and fall. And during the spring and fall, we don't really need that power. Yeah. And and during the night as well. So we're getting power when we don't need it, and that's the power that you know, drives down the cost of the wholesale price that we turn around and sell to New York State or Michigan for two and a half cents on the dollar. So a lot of that is, uh, if you will, wasted. And, and IESO recognized that by saying, well, 
you know, even though we know that a wind turbine can produce, uh, on average, 29 to 30% of its capa- rated capacity over a year, the fact is we only will look at it as if it's got the capability of producing 12% of the power we need when we need it. Hmm. So, you know, it's been it's turned out to be, you know, a waste of, uh, a huge waste of money. And it's looking the same way in Europe. I was just looking at a big, long report that uh, someone sent me that basically says, you know, the European prices in countries that have adapted, you know, uh, wind turbines in a big way are, are, you know, way up there. And that's driving out their, uh, that's driving out their industries and, and uh, you know, creating uh, basically, you know, dormant economies. Uh, advocates will say those prices come down with time as more and more are put out there. Is this a future? Has this experiment worked? I don't think it's worked. I mean, I always go back to the fact that the, the first electricity was generated by Sir James Blythe, who was a Scottish engineer, in 1886. And it didn't take off from that point forward. So what you know, what makes it so great today. It's just, you know, wind is not always blowing. Is technology is, is technology able to propel this into another phase? I mean, is there something coming? Is it just a matter of time before technologically it will be worth it? The only thing that could save it is storage. And there is no storage capabilities that have been developed. I mean, you know, batteries are, mm-hmm. are not a great sort of, uh, you know... Uh, yeah way to to save that surplus energy for when we need it uh and you know so it's I, you know i can't see anything on the horizon that's going to help us save that energy that's produced at the wrong time of the day or the wrong time of the year uh, are we building more are they continuing to be built no well i mean there's still some um you know some of the uh contracts that were handed out are still in kind of uh, right. the building phase a couple of them and there's a couple that uh, are kind of fuzzy there's one called nation rise up on and storm um, up in the ottawa uh, valley area there that is uh, people are fighting on a continuing basis because we don't really need the power and yesterday i was at a, a conference and i managed to get one of the iso was running this conference for for uh, uh, you know, regional planning, and I got one of the fellows aside from ISO and asked him the question, you know, do we need that power? And he said, well, no, we don't really need that power in, in this area. So, uh, But they haven't canceled it officially, so it's still good. It's 100 megawatts, you know. So, uh, Is it too late to cancel those because we know too much? Well, I don't, I mean, the concern is, is you know, what I was told is that, well, they'll turn around and sue us. Yeah. And, you know, so if they're going to sue us... Might I mean, as well that, build them. <laughs> that project will cost us, over 20 years, it'll cost us $400 million bucks. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, if they sue us and they are awarded $10 million, it's not a big deal. I think let's let them sue us or let's negotiate a, a closeout on this contract. But they haven't done that. So I don't Are you know. surprised the, this government isn't doing that more aggressively? I am, because... You know, there's been lots of legal authorities that have come up and said, yeah, the government, if it wants to, could say, yeah, we're going to pass uh, an act that, that will eliminate, you know, any contracts that we have signed. And they could do that. But, 
you know. Would uh, that be political suicide? It, well, I don't know whether it would be yeah. political suicide or whether or not they're just afraid that uh, it, it sends a signal to industry coming into the province. So, you know, uh, you know. Uh, Ontario is open for business. Maybe it's uh, yeah. is, is is the slogan that the current government uses. Maybe that wouldn't go over too well if they did that. Parker Galan has been with us, Vice President of Win Concern, uh, Wit Concerns Ontario, Ontario PC Party, winding down the Liberal Fair Hydro Plan. Still say that they're going to try to uh, to uh, bring you a, a further reduction of 12%. Parker, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Oh, I like to be here, Scott. Thank you very much. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.